Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Views on View. I am your host, Lindsay Wardell. With me today is Steve Edwards. Hello from Portland. Austin Gill. Hey, hey, hey. Coming from San Diego. And special guest today is... I'm actually not sure how to say your last name. I'm sorry. It's Brad. Brad Balfour. Balfour. Brad Balfour. Welcome to the show today, Brad. Thanks. Coming to you from outside of D.C. and Maryland. Nice. As the special guest today, would you mind introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about what you do? No, my pleasure. I'm a senior software developer at Bloomberg LP. I'm out of the D.C. office. Most of the rest of my team is up in our New York and New Jersey offices and work for an internal group we call Data Tools as part of our data engineering group, building tools and visualizations for uh, mostly our big data system that sits behind and in between the components that power our website, the Bloomberg.com consumer media side. Sounds like a lot of work, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv slash job book. That's devchat.tv slash job book. It's fun. It's uh, a bunch of different technologies. Uh, It's a a lot different than when I originally had started, where I was specifically on the content management side. And that's probably one of the things I like best about Bloomberg is that I'm constantly learning new technologies, expanding, and they're willing to pay me to keep up with all sorts of new things. It sounds like a great work environment where they encourage you to continue learning and stay up to date. Yeah. I've been there about four and a half years now and been just enjoying the heck out of it. Curious, when did you get into programming? I got into programming in the ancient times. I got a computer degree, computer science degree at a university in Maryland. And so I've been doing software development, you know, since, well, since before college. And so I've always done that. Some of the times it's been, you know, deep into coding. Other times I've been doing training and consulting. So there was a stint where I was doing three and five day long classes, two or three weeks a month, or consulting work, been a pre-sales engineer, uh, ran a support uh, department. So I've had a varied set of things over time, but it's always it's always been software development since the beginning. Oh, cool. That's, that's awesome. Thanks for joining us today. Our, our topic today, the reason we have asked you to come or what we would like to talk about is specifically how you had a talk in ViewConf 2019. It sounds like you're planning for one for sometime in 2020 about how Vue made it easy for your team to add value quickly to your application at Bloomberg. Would you mind just jumping in and start to talk about that a bit? Uh, no, my pleasure. It's basically we started back in 2016 with Marionette and Backbone for our JavaScript front end for a number of systems. Uh, at that point, the first primary one was our content management-related systems that the uh, writers and editors used to produce articles for the websites. And we had realized that it was just getting painful to produce the front ends in that technologies. One of the developers on the team had started playing with Vue and brought it in. And what we realized pretty quickly was that there was a lot of 
benefits. The, the biggest first one was how incremental it was. We could just insert a little bit of view into this existing application without having to stop and replace everything. So during the sprints, we could add some incremental benefits, start using the view technology, and then continue using Marionette and Backbone in other parts of the application. And as we started to do that, the rest of the team realized that it was easy to learn. We could do the PRs, we could jump in without having to have had you know, a huge amount of formal education. It wasn't a long learning curve for any of us to get up to speed on the technology. And that led for uh, nice incremental improvements to the delivery to the users and, and an incremental adoption within the system. So both on our content management system and on our um, application that curates the homepage, we were able to start adding a whole bunch of view to that uh, pretty quickly. One of the other things that we kind of realized was that there was a lot of components in the view ecosystem out there uh, that we could start using. And so beyond what was already there or creating some custom things, a lot of those NPM packages was just a quick install away. And that led us to being able to start making some big, quick wins that our users could see. So regarding the incremental adoption story, I feel like we kind of hear this a bit that view one of the nice features is that it's incrementally adoptable for various reasons. One being that it's easy to use, two, that it has a pretty light footprint, three, you can, you know, tell it to attach to mount onto any sort of HTML selector. But I'm wondering the end of these stories in many cases, at least on this podcast or other people that I speak to, is that you have that incremental adoption and then you keep incrementally adopting. And then before you know it, you have refactored your whole application to be like a single page application. So I'm wondering if that's the same story for you at Bloomberg. And if so, what, you know, do you hit this kind of point where you have a challenge of kind of, you know, balancing, you kind of get that, maybe you get to that uh, halfway point and you're kind of balancing more of a legacy system and more of this, you know, incrementally adopted system. And, you know, are there any challenges along the way there? No, Austin, that's, I mean, that's a great point because I really wish that our story ended exactly that way for everything, but it, it didn't and it doesn't. For the original applications where we added Vue in, there's distinct new features that are all done in Vue, but we've never had the budget, the time to go back and just simply rewrite the old stuff in the new technology. If it's been some part of the application where there was a problem or you know some reason, then we could do it. But it, the, the applications are too large and the number of other things that we've got to work on also are too numerous that we've just never been able to justify you know, a wholesale refactoring or wholesale rewrite. So the original applications are still mixed. But since then, the newer applications that have been started, those all have been pure view from top to bottom. So we basically got to a point where anything new that we started, we had abandoned the old technologies, and those are view single-page apps. The lightning talk I did for the 2019, for example, was all about the A-B testing product that we created in-house and how that had some specific interesting benefits from view and the view component ecosystem. But that was one of the first ones where we were able to do it top to bottom because it was a brand new app. 
So one of the things I've always been curious about is backbone and sort of how it worked. And the reason I ask is I came from the Drupal world. And I know that I believe it was in Drupal 7, Backbone had been included. And some people used it, some didn't. And I was, before the podcast today, I was just looking up a couple of blog posts on uh, Backbone and how to get started with it. Can you give a real brief overview of how Backbone compares to Vue in terms of implementations for Backbone and Marionette? Because that's just something I've always been a little curious about. Yeah, I'll do the best I can. I'm a li- little rusty. It's been definitely a long time since I've had to touch those technologies again on these apps. But the biggest difference is that those are much more like jQuery in terms of providing you with manipulation, abstracting away the the base layer of JavaScript, but not at all doing the things that Vue does for reactivity or components. So there's a little bit about encapsulation and, and packaging, but it's, it's nowhere near as, as sophisticated. And what really led us into loving Vue was all of the reactivity pieces, where anytime we had to do that with Marionette and Backbone, you had to wire up all of the connections between the pieces yourself. And that's, that's kind of what started us down that path of saying, okay, this is just getting really hard to maintain because the users were asking for more interactivity, more pieces in JavaScript, even something as simple as, okay, I've got a field down a form at the top of the page, and I'd like that value to always be reflected in this other field at the bottom of the page so that you know it only has to get entered once, but it stays in sync in both places, which you know, if you're doing it in Vue, you don't even think about it. It's trivial. But in Marionette and Backbone, we had to wire up explicit communication between the two pieces, and it just got to be in incredibly painful from that kind of side. Okay, cool. Thanks. Did you have to try and pass any data between Backbone and Vue? Is that something that would ever come up? I'm not familiar with Backbone. I don't know if it even has that concept in it. Yeah, it wasn't for us. We ended up uh, introducing the stuff in kind of a separation way. So we were using the Vue router and introducing basically additional new URLs and pages in the app and doing those in view rather than trying to mix them on the same page. So for us, it didn't, didn't turn out to be an issue, especially because ours is fully you know, client-server. So the front end is the JavaScript. The back end originally was PHP and then now got rewritten and was rewritten a few years ago into being Ruby on Rails, at least for those first apps. And now our latest apps are basically pure JavaScript and Node. So in the proposal for your 2020 talk that uh, we're looking at, you talk, you were going to talk about the stuff that your data tools team was able to do and how you didn't have to focus on the common repetitive tasks that a lot of other projects had. What uh, were some of the tools that gave you a leg up, as you put it, on getting where you wanted to go? I mean, I know you talked about a lot of the, the components that were already out there in the Vue ecosystem that you could just you know, do an NPM install and they were part of your project. Was there any other tools outside of those or maybe some particular component examples that you used that were really useful to you? Yeah, Steve, let me give you two specific examples. So we had a a general need with this uh, latest tool, which was one that was helping to build audiences and audience information out of the data in our uh, monster size data lake. And so one of the general issues was that the specifications and the designs that people were working for wanted to basically be the kind of really common single page app 
websites that you'd see. And, and of course, the way you know our users, like all others, are as well, once we see it, we'll probably change our mind on exactly what we want. We'll probably want to iterate this a few times and add a whole bunch of new elements and a new set of pieces. And to top it off, of course, they said, uh, and can you have all this stuff, you know, like last week? So <laughs> what we wanted to do right up front was basically adopt uh, Beautify. We looked at the stuff that John Leiter had done and the material UI was certainly acceptable to our users. They were like, oh yeah, we know what this looks like. This is, this is good. This is modern. We can live with this. And that gave us a huge leg up. I mean, for you know, probably 90, 95% of the kinds of things that they wanted in the UI, we were able to take the Beautify components, change them around with the parameters, the properties, the slots, and basically put together the kind of look and feel that the people wanted very quickly. Then there was also kind of a more specific need that we had on this project where the app needed a rule builder. You know, kind of think of the kind of thing that you've seen in other applications, stuff that, like, I, I do photography on the side. So if you look at the, a tool like Lightroom, there's these rules for smart collections. There are lots of other apps that, that do that, that basically will let you incrementally add rules and ands and ors and then compare elements, you know, saying something is equal to, greater than, less than, something else, and assemble that into a, a rule that the tool can then use. Uh, we had a specific backend requirement to have that in JSON so that could be sent to the backend and eventually down into SQL and match data in the uh, BigQuery data lake. And the users were non-technical, needed a nice, simple visual way of seeing that and building that. Turns out there's a really nice tool called uh, View Query Builder by a guy named Daniel Abernathy, who put together, again, a huge amount of what we needed. It included all the basic rules that you can imagine and a really nice little mechanism in the component to creating a custom rule with a, a different look and feel for what you meant by, you know, how the pieces went together and something. So there's the simple drop downs for, you know, thing is equal to this or uh, a multi-select from a dialogue, but there's also this ability to add in the custom piece as well. And that got us again, you know, really far along the way, we were able to take the JSON that he puts out and do a really quick JavaScript uh, map between that to transform it into the JSON uh, that we needed. And that was a simple function as well. So it, the integrating the pieces worked easily. Yeah, that's the first time I've seen this query builder. That looks nice. I might have to use that. Yeah. And that's where we, we ended up deciding that, you know, our, our new motto is that there's a view component for everything. Like you may have to do some searching to find it, but it's out there. <laughs> That's funny. That used to be uh, back in Drupal. There's a module for everything. We used to hear that phrase all the time too. So yeah, once the, as the ecosystem grows, it's it's easy to find stuff for what you need. One of the most popular pairings for Vue on the front end is Laravel or PHP on the back end. If you're setting up and running a PHP app, then why hassle with all the back end config? Instead, count on Cloudways. Cloudways provides a solution that will have you up and running quickly. They offer exceptional performance and reliability and 24-7 support. So your website or your web app, which is probably crucial to your business, will run in an environment designed for it. Go run it on Cloudways. If you use the code DEVCHAT, you'll get 30% off for three months. So with, with the component conversation, I'm wondering, Brad, if you can tell us how, roughly how many separate sort of view applications 
do y'all have to maintain? Um, well, the group that I'm in, basically now we have two that's in our group. There's another few in another group. And then beyond that, there's a bunch in other places in Bloomberg as well. So like at ViewConf last few years, we've hooked up with people from our BGov and BLaw organizations who've been doing a bunch. And in fact, at the 2020 ViewConf in Austin, at the beginning of March, one of the people from those groups did a presentation as well on some of their experiences in using Vue for their latest rewrite of their application. So these are mostly like internal yeah. tools that internal people are using as compared to outside tools, websites that the public sees? For the BLaw and BGov folks, their piece is their product. And so that's a subscription product that you could uh, sign up and purchase. For my side on consumer media, the only public-facing piece is, of course, the entire Bloomberg.com website, which is an entirely separate piece from any of the things that you know I'm involved in. That front-end piece is, is its own thing. So all of our tools are, yes, they're internal tools in my group. With all these view applications that you are sort of witnessing or managing internally, is are there any component or component libraries that you can share that have just been kind of, you know, you, you see them being used in across many of these instances as opposed to kind of the examples of like very specific needs and having, you know, still being able to find these components? Do you have these, these ones that are kind of ubiquitous and shared across multiple projects? The, the ubiquitous one for us is Beautify. That That has turned out to be, you know, just a really nice approach to use that majorly for all of the UI elements, make everything look uniform across all of ours. And then we set up a little bit of styling on it to, to make it look the way our designers wanted our internal apps to look. And that's been mm-hmm. a very nice thing. It's kept us from having to build and maintain a lot of our own components at that point. I kind of led into my my next question was whether you all have any sort of internal component system or like a style guide system that is shared across different sort of entities? No, there's definitely been talk about that, but it hasn't come to that point where there's a single uniform design style guides or any of that for things outside of, of course, the main Bloomberg.com website that, that is, you know, tightly designed and controlled that way. But for our internal tools, no, we really haven't. And, I think a lot of that goes to the fact that the audiences for those tools are sometimes pretty separate. So it's not like um, we have the issue of having people, you know, seeing different tools with different UIs and having to kind of master all of those. So is Bloomberg.com using Vue or something like that, or is that a whole different tool set? No, whole different tool set. That's pretty much all custom internal JavaScript framework that I believe was last rewritten and redesigned a couple of years ago, but I'm not on that team, so I can't say for sure. One of the other points you brought up in your Lightning talk was about how easy it was to learn and use Vue compared to what you had been using. Do you mind talking about that for a little bit, how your team ramped up into Vue and started getting used to the ecosystem as it as it exists in Vue as opposed to back? Yeah, I mean, for us, there was actually not a lot of formal work like I said before, when the culture is such that we really do adopt a lot of new technologies each time we go to, the, you know, we go and evolve on different projects. But in this case, people started putting it into the PRs and 
there was definitely work to go back and say, okay, what am I? What have I got here? The docs are excellent. I'm sure some of the other folks probably did online videos from you know ViewMaster or other places, but I I don't know about anybody other than me. There's a number of you know books as well, and we've got internally access to like the entire O'Reilly Library, so uh, it was easy enough for people to pull up and and read the books and see the videos that are available within that platform. So. It, mostly individuals ended up doing it themselves, and we would do discussions as groups as part of the PRs and, and PR reviews. We'd all you know, jump on either Slack or on our internal video conferencing uh, tool called Nexi and talk about the stuff, but it really didn't end up being something that was requiring a lot of formal training for anybody to pick up. And that was kind of impressive because we were not assuming that that would be true in the beginning. My last job, that was one of the concerns when I wanted to shift from using jQuery to Vue. My boss was highly concerned that if suddenly I was not there, he would be able to find somebody who could ramp up in time. And I, I tried to assure him the same thing, that it's actually really easy to get started in Vue. And if you have experience with JavaScript, then there's to teach you what you're missing. So I'm glad to hear that that was repeated. Yeah, for our organization, I mean, we went from you know the one first developer who he introduced things to four of us on that team that were all, you know, using it a little, to then another two or three developers from there, to now within my part of consumer media, probably just between our our two or three groups, probably 10 folks or more who are all capable of doing things in view. And from, uh, you know, one of us showing up at a, at a view comp in the beginning to we sent three folks this time just from our side, plus all the other folks from the other different Bloomberg parts. And in fact, Bloomberg ended up sponsoring the developer lounge for this year's ViewComp. Yeah, one thing, one of the things I really like about your story is, and this is more of a, a corporate culture type of thing, is that you were willing to listen to this person and start to incorporate this. At my previous employer, I fought for months to get to use Vue and Nux because I was watching all of the dollars and hours and resources that went into dealing with caching with PHP and, and cache validation, invalidation and, and so on. It was frustrating as heck and I just couldn't get it to come in. And so that was mainly the reason I ended up leaving and going to where I'm at. So to me, that speaks a lot about corporate culture in that you were willing to listen to somebody who said, hey, let's try something new, see it and say, yeah, this is great. Let's use it. And then, and then eventually incorporate it and see the benefits of it. Yeah, and I think for Bloomberg, there's absolutely a culture of bottom-up innovation. You know, there's an encouragement from the management level to have the developers propose things and innovate. But also, there's a there's an evidence-based kind of approach to things. And so, when Eduardo, you know, puts up a PR that clearly was simpler and easier than any of the other code that was doing the equivalent capability and he was doing it faster. We're like, okay, how'd you get this done so fast? What magic do you have that we don't know? So then, you know, people get very curious. I'm, I'm also curious, did this experiment repeat with any other technologies? Like, did anyone at Bloomberg suggest using React or uh, start using something outside of Vue before uh, the switch was actually made? No, there are. I mean, it's definitely not something that's uniform everywhere. There are lots of other teams, and some of those are using React. I don't know of any that are using Angular at this point, but there are definitely other teams in other groups with their tools that are React-based. 
and having, I think, similar experiences in terms of finding it better than whatever previous technology they had been using. Are there concerns from a corporate standpoint that if you start getting one group's using React and one group's using Vue, that uh, there might be some conflicts at some point, or is it seen more of a good thing is that we're going to allow people to, to use what best suits their particular need? I think there's probably people feeling both ways. And at this point, it hasn't percolated up enough to get decided. There's never been, at least as far as I can tell from the, the groups that I've been working with in the last few years in Bloomberg, this kind of, all right, we're going to decide what the approach is for all projects. That's, that's not tend to be how things worked. But within departments or within organizations within a department, there's definitely a self-tendency to say, well, let's, you know, let's standardize and let's try and, and not needlessly do things a bunch of different ways just for the sake of doing it different ways. So like for our group, because we had come into view rather than coming into React, and it wasn't a conscious thing. It was just that was the technology that, you know, got thrown in there and said, hey, let's try this. So as a result, we've standardized on that. Other groups, I think, for the same organic reason, somebody started using something in React, they're doing it in React. At some point, probably, yes, there'll be discussions and people will end up trying to coordinate amongst the groups and standardize things, but that's certainly not where we're at yet. Yeah, as a as a developer, I kind of like the idea of having the multiple libraries across different teams, not in the same project, but across different teams, because when you're talking, you know, Vue and React, I think there's just a small leap between the two libraries. You know, they're very similar and you can do things the same and kind of view that you could do in, that you can do in React. But I like that because I don't know, I, I feel like it would provide kind of a a shift in context or like some novelty in the work and maybe opportunities to learn something new, pick up new tricks. And also you kind of like can stay relevant with both libraries at the same time. Well, cool. so Brad, anything else we haven't covered that you want to talk about with your team's use of view? The only other thing I think worth mentioning is that we managed to also realize, I think, with some of the components that even in the cases where the component itself didn't do 100% of what we wanted, did like 90, 95% of what we wanted, uh, we didn't need to go in and modify the source code or fork our own version of their component and change the code, put up PR. There were times where we could, you know, say, hack their component by hooking into it through the CSS that was available and through basically adding into the existing DOM elements on there. So for example, on the rule builder, people wanted tool tips. And that wasn't something that was obvious or easy to do with the, the props and slots that were available to it. Uh, but we were able to add those on top of it without having to really modify that component at all. That turned out to be a really nice benefit for these kind of components that we didn't realize initially. So would you say adding on top, are you topic, talking about like creating a wrapper component basically around, around this other component, adding additional props or other functionality? You probably could go to that extent. For our case, we didn't even have to. It was much more a matter of just in the piece that was using it, adding additional CSS and basically adding in some listeners on uh, mouse over, mouse out to toggle the 
other existing beautify components like the tooltip on and off. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So having had this experience with sort of hacking into a component that doesn't have the things that you needed, do you have any advice for library authors that may or may not have a component library to make things easier? Like as a, as a consumer, things that you find in component libraries that you really appreciate or like best practices for library authors? Sure. I mean, I think one of the things that we've seen is the ability not just to have, you know, whatever few props that you can imagine, but the ability to put in slots, name slots, the scope slots that you would allow almost anything to be nested in there. That would be helpful. I think where those don't work, putting in some kind of an equivalent to a a plug-in mechanism or a hook has also been incredibly helpful for us whenever we bumped into those to let us basically at whatever point in the internal component state and lifecycle say, okay, just quick call out, do this one thing, and then go back to doing what you're doing. And that allows for some nice integration between pieces as well. So if people add those kinds of things, that definitely gets us a little bit further. Awesome. Cool. Thank you, Brad, for joining us and telling us all about your adventure view ecosystem. That's been my pleasure. Is there anywhere that people can follow you or reach out to you online that you'd like to share with us? Sure. I'm available on Twitter. It's just at Brad Balfour. B-A-L-F-O-U-R. The generic portal website is also bbalfour.com or bradbalfour.com. Both of them seem to relocate to the same one. Awesome. We'll make sure that gets into the show notes as well. Are you freelancing or moonlighting? Or maybe you've thought about going out on your own. Every week, we have a group of developers at various stages of the freelancing journey on The Freelancer Show to talk about becoming better at freelancing. We also bring in experts to talk about marketing, SEO, and delivering high quality to clients. So if you're interested in going freelance or you are freelance, check it out at freelancershow.com. All right, let's move on to picks. Let's start with Austin today. Austin, do you have a pick for us? Yeah, with this whole social distancing, self-isolation stuff, I think I'm going to stay off the tech picks and go with health and wellness, I guess. My wife and I have been kind of, we used to, well, we normally play soccer under normal circumstances during the week. And that's a lot of fun. But since we're indoors, we're looking for other ways to stay healthy and kind of have a nice routine. So we've been doing some like stretching slash yoga exercises on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and more like high intensity exercises on Tuesdays and Thursdays. The high intensity exercises have been great. We've been doing them off a website called fitnessblender.com. And they have a whole bunch of just like free videos you can follow along with in-house. You don't need weights. You don't need equipment. It's all like body weight stuff and definitely gets our heart rates going. And the stretching ones, we don't, I don't think we have a really good example. We did one this morning that was on a website called hasfit.com, which is pretty good, but we'll see how that one goes. So those are my picks. Awesome. Thank you. Quick interruption, Brad. I'm looking at your uh, photography website. I like the uh, the work you got there. That's really good. Yeah, there's some stunning photos on there. Thank you. I I appreciate that. Now, if any of you all can tell me how to turn those into dollars as a side hustle, I'd appreciate it (laughs) because 
I cannot seem to sell any of those online anywhere. Well, as soon as I figure that out, or my some of my family members also do photography professionally. So as soon as they give me some tips, I'll get that to you as well. Thanks. Brad, how about you go next? Do you have any picks for us today? Sure. So I've got two things. One is on the professional and business side. I'm a big fan of everything Seth Godin, including his Kimbo podcast and his blog, which, you know, for professional development or career side, I highly recommend that. And then my hobby and side hustle is photography. And so I'd also recommend, especially now, if people have extra time and they're at all interested in that, Kelby One and their training is uh, phenomenal. It's probably a good time to go sign up for their 30-day free account and consumes massive amounts of videos. That was Kelby One, correct? Correct. Yeah. My mom has done those same courses. She's a big fan of that. Steve, how about you go with your picks? Okay. So first one is this ViewConf talk that I came across while I was watching Brad's. And I believe it's also from 2019. And it's called Demystifying the Dark Art of SFC, Single File Component Compilation. I'm going to try to do the guy's name. He's Indian, as in from India, Rahul Kajian, I believe. And it's a really good lightning talk. It's about 18 minutes long. And he goes through and shows how basically the different parts of a component are compiled to transpath to JavaScript, basically using render functions, JSX. So that's really fascinating. It's also really funny, especially at the beginning, because he has a very heavy accent. And he starts out the talk by saying, okay, there's two things we're going to try to understand during this talk. One is my accent, and two is SFC compilation. So it's, uh, had me, he had me laughing uh, out loud. It was pretty funny. But it's, it's, it's a very good talk. And it, uh, as he says, he de- demystifies some of the, what goes on behind the scenes with the view single component files, single file components, excuse me. The second is a video from a guy named Mike Rowe. I'm sure a lot of people know Mike Rowe as a guy that used to do the Dirty Jobs TV show. He does a lot of narration of different TV shows. And he has a Facebook show called Returning the Favor, where he helps out different people that are doing good works in their communities with with groups. Over the past couple of years, he's brought his parents into what he does. And his mom in particular has been a writer for a lot of years. She's uh, used to contribute different pieces to magazines, sort of freelance type work. He started reading aloud some of the stories she would send him about his dad, her husband. And they're funny. You can just see him dying laughing. So eventually she wrote a book. Uh, She's written two books. One was called About My Mother and Stories About Her Mother. And then uh, a second book, the, the newest one is called About Your Father. And she has such a She's right at my alley when it comes to sense of humor, such a dry sense of humor, use lots of euphemisms. So the one in particular I want to pick with all that as a background is a piece he does on his Facebook page called Mondays with Mother. He talks about how they used to share each other their stories they were writing and critique them one for the other. And so a couple of days ago, he posted one and she talks about a medical issue she had with her bladder. So funny. I was laughing out loud as I'm reading this and it's on his Facebook page, Mike Rose. So I'll put the link in. But just a hysterical little story. And the whole thing is about 20 minutes. Very easy to listen to, but, but really funny. Awesome. I have to, have to look at that. I've never heard of health condition that's funny. So I'm going to have to listen to this because this, this will be great. Oh, it's not uh, so much the health condition that's funny. It's just the way she talks about it. It's, it's hysterical. Just, just the story. Okay. Awesome. So I have two picks today. One is I am, as most others probably, working from home at this point. And at work, I had a standing desk 
now I do not because I am at home and I don't have a standing desk. That was given. That's part of my office at work. So I was looking around and there was this website that I heard of a long time ago called monoprice.com. And they, I originally learned about them, I think from twit.tv, one of their, one of their episodes, somebody was talking about it, but they originally started, I think with just focusing on media cables uh, that were wholesale priced, which they still do and is awesome. That's where I get mine. They're dirt Uh, cheap. They're great. Oh yeah. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful cable. I, I just ordered a new power cable. We, accidentally killed one of our, just like a desktop power cable and just bought a new one for a dollar and change. So we're pretty excited about that price. But they also have work from home materials. So I have purchased a standing desk that is on casters and is supposed to handle having a monitor and your laptop and a keyboard and everything on it. And it's just under $100. Unfortunately, like everyone else, everyone is getting tons of orders right now for online purchases. So it's a bit delayed, but... When it comes, I'll make sure to bring it up again. I just like this website, especially for their cables. So that's monoprice.com. It's sort of funny. My office, we have, it's about half and half people that work from home or people that will work in the office. And some people work in the office all the time. And over the past week, you know, we've all started working from home. And a couple of people have literally gone into the office to get their standing desks to take them home and put them in their home so they can have the same desk while we are all working at home for the time being. I really wish I could do that right now. Yeah, Uh, it would be nice. So my second pick today, I have been trying to avoid news and try to relax. So I went to a game that I've been playing for some years called Stellaris. For those who haven't heard of it, Stellaris is a grand strategy game by Paradox. They also make games like they do Crusader Kings, Europa, Universalis. I think they have a couple others. There's Hearts of Iron. So they're really big into strategy games. This is their sci-fi strategy game. The idea is you're a civilization that just developed interstellar travel, and now you're going out to the stars, colonizing planets, running into new species. And as of recording, there's a new expansion recently that adds additional bonuses for federations. So you can form a galactic community out of all the different alien races, where you get to vote on things and apply sanctions to other nations. You get to have different types of federations. It's, it's a really good game, gives you a lot of interesting decisions that you can make. You can either be uh, really into science, you can play as a spiritualist nation, you can play as a pacifist, you can play as a a xenophobic fanatic purifier that's going to destroy the entire galaxy. And it throws in a lot of role-play elements as well. So it's not just a straight strategy game. It gives you opportunities to explore the world and kind of the lore that's building all of that up. So that's Stellaris. I'll make sure there's a link to a, a website about that in the show notes. So, Lindsay, I'm um, always curious, how many hours do you have in your day? Because you, every time you're talking <laughs> about all these different programming languages that you're doing, all these video games you're doing, these books you're reading, oh, and by the way, you have a family. Like, what is going on over there? Time machine? Um, time machine. Yeah, I, I can't talk about it, but Professor McGonagall gave me something. Uh, <laughs> Just I just you know turn the time turner a couple times just to get the extra hours for study. Yeah, exactly. All right. So thank you all for listening. If you want to listen to more episodes of Views on View, you can find us online on Twitter at Views on View, or you can go to our website, viewsonview.com, or at devchat.tv. You can follow our hosts as well. You can find me at Yagabush. You can find Steve at Wonder95. You can also find 
Austin at Stegosourced. All of those will be in the show notes as well. Thank you all for listening. Hope you had a great time. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next time. Adios. See you next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.